the 11 disciples had been with Jesus 40 days after the resurrection. They had gone from disbelief to doubt to, to astonished wonder. And this is the end. Jesus was about to ascend to heaven. Said that the 11 were gathered there. Some of them still doubted. Even after seeing the risen Lord, some of them still doubted, and yet they worshipped him anyway, and yet he sent them anyway. And he commissioned them. He said, you are to remain in Jerusalem to receive power on high to be my witnesses, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the furthest, uttermost parts of the earth. Last Friday and Saturday, last two days here at Bethel, we had literally the results of the gospel going out to the uttermost parts of the earth here at Bethel. He had a conference. Uh, this was just yesterday. This is what the stage looked like last night. But it was a conference for Mongolian Christians. Uh, now, the church in Mongolia is absolutely amazing in that it is a, such a young church in, in, in the world that there were no known believers in Mongolia prior to about 1997. Um, there were a couple secret believers that we knew about sort of in about 94, 95, uh, some individuals, they weren't living there full time, uh, but really the first converts happened about 97. Um, there was a, a wave of immigration that happened in America, so there's about 80,000 Mongolians living in the States, uh, primarily um, a little bit in the West Coast, Chicago, and then the D.C. area. And from that, Mongolian churches have been planted amongst these people. And so the first converts in America of the, the, the great Mongolian diaspora, right, largest empire in the world ever of any country that's had an empire, uh, and also probably the most unreached people group um, uh, dealing with this, this kind of numbers. Um, Buddhists, animists, communists, completely close to the gospel, closed country. Um, I've been all over the northern Mongolian border and try as I might, I wasn't able to even get in the country when I was there. But God got in, led many people to himself, and that church has continued to grow here in America. Um, they have conferences every year, and for them, this is their lifeblood. This is when they see each other. This is when uh, people who were discipled by others meet up again and, and, and trade stories. People are empowered in prayer. People are sent out. Breakthroughs happen. Um, there there uh, were two small churches of 40 people each in San Francisco and Oakland, and it was their turn to host this year. And there was no place, no church that was willing to offer, this, uh, offer their building because it wasn't for them. Hey, we don't speak Mongolian. What's in it for us? I mean, you guys are a bunch of Mongolians. Nobody understands Mongolian. Why would you give you our church? Get your own Mongolian church. Uh, and they were despondent, and so they were praying around the world. When we got our uh, new website, uh, thanks, thanks to Rocky, we don't know what he did, but they were just, we were just inundated with, hey, um, we were wondering, we were praying, we have this thing coming up, could we use your church? A lot of those didn't work because we were already doing ministry, but nothing was going on these days, and there was just something that seemed right. And so the, the, the church people came over, they looked at this, they decided we're going to go ahead. They were 
unbelievably excited, and I had no idea why. But uh, they, they, this just wasn't going to happen and, and, and needed to for so many reasons. And so there were about 250 people uh, crammed, crammed in here, uh, close fellowship downstairs certainly for mealtimes. But it was this conference on how they were, they were commissioning people to plant new churches. That's the gang right there. Um, the, the prayer that was going up, their prayer for all of us, the prayer for our church, um, the, 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 the healings, the anointings, the, the commissionings, um, people, uh, all these new church plants started out. There was a student here who discovered all these Mongolians that came to the Lord and leading a Bible study. Oh, one of these guys, a doctoral student, was commissioned to be a pastor. Uh, families that have just been called of the Lord, we're going to start yet another church. The excitement, the rawness that, that God God is real. God is in the house. It was absolutely unbelievable fellowship time here. I think this is, this is the blessing of the kids up front. There were 60 kids that came to the conference. Um, yeah, and that's, that's the class picture. But all of these people, pastors coming over from Ulaanbaatar, the capital. One pastor works with 100,000 homeless people. That's his congregation amongst a nomadic people group. How are you homeless as a nomad? Sounds pretty bad. God is at work, revival's happening, and all of these people, unbelievably blessed, encouraged, mobilized, motivated, sent out. We weren't using this, this gift that God had given us these two days, and this group was able to utilize it, and God has multiplied their lives, their ministries, and purposed themselves. There are people flying back right now to Ulaanbaatar, Washington, D.C., Chicago, um, Sacramento, while they're driving, I suppose, um, Seattle, number of places, 15 new churches, all mobilized, all motivated, the gospel going out. What we've been looking at, the last two chapters, 9 and 10, and today now in 11 in, in, in the book of Romans, is what is God doing with his people? What is God ultimately going to do with, with the Jews, his people? How does that relate to us? Goy, us Gentiles? And, and how does it all fit together? How do we fit the Old Testament and the New Testament together? How do we fit what God is doing with Israel? Pick a side. Are you a bleeding heart liberal crying out for the Palestinians being displaced? Are you a, a guns and Jesus conservative that says, hey, it's God gave them the land and drive them out? Or somewhere in between. What do we do geopolitically? What do we do with our checkbook? What do we do with our prayers? How do we relate to individual Jews? How do we understand salvation? And is God doing something different? Ultimately for Paul it was a sense of can we trust God? He promised no matter what he would save his people. And yet his people are enemies of God. They're killing his people. There seems to be something not going on here. So how do we have confidence in God's word and God's plan and ultimately God's salvation? You see, looking at the gospel going to Mongolia, and now Mongolians taking the gospel back across the around the world, we could say, well, we are really close to the end times. Because Jesus, when asked by his disciples, when, when are you going to zip it all up? When are you going to spool camp and game over? And he said, first the gospel must be preached to all nations. And the word for nations is where we get the word ethnic, um, to all peoples, to all people groups. Then the end will come. Well, if the gospel has gone this far out and is coming back, surely it's end times. We would think this has gone out. 
Culturally, the songs that were being sung, I recognized them. All the songs that were sung on the stage, even though they were in Mongolian, I understand like three words in Mongolian. I mean, it's, it, it was, it's written in Russian, but I, I can't understand a word. Um, and, but the songs, I knew them all because these were the songs my parents were singing when they got saved in the 70s. And then the missionaries took these songs and this culture and they translated it. And these were the songs that people fell in love with when they came to the Lord in Eastern Europe in the 80s. And then these missionaries took them to Russia in the 90s. And then these missionaries took them um, into Siberia and eastern Russia in the late 90s. And then these people took them to Mongolia uh, in the 2000s. It was the same culture. So I could say this is the end. I experienced this type of cultural Christianity early on as a child. I've experienced other things. Oh, isn't that sweet? Isn't that cute? Now these people who haven't known Christ, they're getting these baby gospel and love you Jesus songs. And I will lift your name on high. Yeah, isn't that great? And, and this cultural Christianity. And we could say this is the end game. The gospel's finally going to the last few people. And they're getting an antiquated cultural version. But it's cool. It's Jesus, right? God didn't look at it that way at all. What God saw were 250 people at great cost, great expense, great prayer, great investment, showing up here fully expected for God to move, fully expected that whatever barrier was in their life, God was going to deal with, fully expecting whatever limitation their church was stumbling over and and despondent over, God was going to meet them in a miraculous way, fully expecting that God was going to give guidance and empowering and direction, that God was going to make good on his promises and grow his church, that hearts were going to be encouraged, lives were going to be made whole, and guess what? That's exactly what God did. It wasn't the end. It wasn't God just wrapping up a few details before bringing the kingdom. Our lives are where God's plans begin, not end. See, a big problem we have trying to sort out how does Israel and the Old Testament and the church and the New Testament and the Holy Spirit and and the end times and how does it all fit together, it's because we think in the wrong categories. We think in categories, and and that's wrong because God thinks in terms of people, in passion, in relationship, in vulnerability, in intimacy. He thinks qualitatively, where we want answers, we want hard divisions, we want boundaries, we want to know, am I standing in the right box, or am I standing in the wrong, wrong box? And, and we approach it this way, that this is how salvation ends. Oh, I'm glad they got saved. Now they can get to heaven. The purpose of life is to, you know, somehow make it out of here. And we're thinking about this all wrong. There was a rich man who wanted the, the, he, he wanted the greatest house ever. And so he's building his dream house, build it 10 times over. Right? You build your own house, you build it three times. This guy's a perfectionist. And he wanted the t- state-of-the-art, top-of-the-line appliances. So he got his Uber Viking range, and he got his Sub-Zero fridge, and he got all these things. Um, and he was going for the ultimate refrigerator. This refrigerator did everything. Not only did it have the water, and it had the ice, and it had a, it had a lemon spritzer for the the, the lime water, it had, it had everything. It could intuit what, he, what mood he was in as he would walk up and it would already present breakfast as he's walking up. It had so many integrated chips and moving parts, it cost $100,000 and he was determined this was it. So he had it delivered. He had the, all the, it took three workmen to hook up and they, they, they had installed it and they had to rebuild his house and put in some extra plumbing and it was good to go. And so he's just 
the captain of his domain. He walks into his new kitchen with his new appliances, state-of-the-art. He had arrived, and he goes to his refrigerator, opens it up. It's dark. Refrigerator's not supposed to be dark. The light's supposed to come on. Wait a minute. This thing doesn't work. He's furious. Uh, He checks. Okay, it was warranty. He has everything. A credit card receipt, Amex black card. Calls him up, uh, tech hotline, and he's going through the whole thing. You have no idea how much money I paid, how much I deserve. This is unacceptable. Give me your top engineer. No, I don't want to talk to you. Top engineer. And he's berating this person. So they're going through the troubleshooting list. Okay, did you try this? Did you check the filter? So finally the person asked, um, excuse me, sir, is, the, is your refrigerator plugged in? To which he says, one moment. He goes away and he said, thank you. And he hangs up. You see, our salvation is beyond state of the art. Is beyond top dollar. It's the most costly thing in the universe. It's the most forward-looking thing in the universe. It's the most intimate, intuitive, form-fitting, personal thing that there is in the universe. In terms of power, in terms of value, there is no compare. And it has been given to us free because it's been paid in full. But is it connected to the power source? Even though the value is in salvation and in what God did for us, Unless we personally appropriate it, unless we are personally connected to the power source, the greatest salvation in the world is going to profit us nothing. See, it's not a matter of association. It's not just a matter of understanding. It's a matter of living. It's a matter of surrender. It's a matter of belief. It's a matter of being congruent with our lives. And when we see that this is the case for all people for all time, then we see what's going on with Israel really isn't any different than what goes on with any person or any one of us as humans. There's always been a group within a group. There's always been the group that calls itself the people of God, that is designated the people of God, that is identified by others as the people of God. But not everyone within that group is true Israel or truly knows God or or, or is truly saved. We have many examples in the Old Testament of people who were just taken out. People whose hearts were revealed and exposed as being opposed to God or only about them. Or that they were using the things of God to put themselves up. And and it had nothing to do with God. And so Paul sort of picks up this argument and moves ahead. It's this sense of this. I heard a friend say this. When I'm in heaven... Because we were talking about this, and I was joking, saying, you know, I'm really trying to stop all the stupid theological arguments I have with people. What about this? What about that? Predestination, free will. You know, um, what about the dinosaurs? What about... So, you know, I've got pretty strong opinions, but they're opinions. And at the end of the day, even though there's eternity in heaven, I want to spend that time praising God and not going up to people apologizing for all the stupid stances I took and, and messing up their faith. So I'm saying, I'm just trying to shorten that list, okay? And so this person was saying, you know what I'm going to do in heaven? I'm just going to be silent for like 100,000 years. Because I just, one, I'm not going to believe that I'm there. When all's said and done, even though I know who I've trusted, I know Jesus, it's all, I know it's about him. But just when I'm actually there in heaven, I'm going to be blown away that I'm actually here. Then, after about 100,000 years and the shock wears off, I'm going to be blown away by who else is there. 
I'm just going to be stunned. Whoa! I was praying. I had my doubts. I am so, woo! God is good. Hey, you're here. Woo! All right. Yeah! John, buddy, right? Oh, yeah. Solid, man. Luke, pal. And then, after another 100,000 years, and that shock wears off, then I'm going to be stunned by who isn't there. Where's Bill? Dang. Bill. He preached to others and disqualified himself. What happened? You see, we have these impressions. Of course this person's in. Of course this person's out. But we can only judge from the outside. God knows the whole heart, the whole story, and he takes the long view, and he is always at work, always at work with his people, always at work with all those that call upon his name, but he loves us too much to be satisfied with, we think we're good. He continually invades, continually presses in more, and that's what he did with his people. So, jumping into the text. Romans 11, starting with verse 1. Picks up his same thing. So I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. And again, it's that strong adverse of, heck no. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Okay, do you remember, where did we see that word foreknew? All you, all you Roman scholars out there. Am I talking to myself? Really? No? Anyone? Um, Romans 8, glorious Romans 8, the, 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 everyone's favorite chapter. Those whom he foreknew, he justified, he redeemed, he glorified. The first thing in the things he foreknew, it's not that he knew knowledge about people, because he knew everything about everybody, right? But those he knew personally, relationally. I don't understand it, but the best translation is those whom he fell in love with before he even made. That's a God thing. I don't know how that works. But there was a relational connection that God has committed to. That's true Israel. That's true faith. That's what God does. God did not reject his people whom he fell in love with beforehand. So, so Paul's really up in the ante. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? And every Jew knows about Elijah because you read about him in Passover. How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I reserve for myself 7,000 who, 7, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, the chosen among them did, but the others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, and ears that could not hear, to this very day. Clear as mud, right? We good? I can see through you like a book. I'm mixing my metaphors, that was a joke. Not too clear here. What's going on? What, what, 7,000 people not bowing to ball and I've given them a spirit of stupor? That sounds like God's really, really on the stick here, wants his people to come to him. What's going on? Okay, these are classic verses that are brought up in many arguments. We have other places in the New Testament where Paul brings this up, but he's saying, look, we can say two things about God all along. One, God's always got his people. God is faithful. And two, even though God is Faithful with his people, uh, we have to ask, what really are the people of God? Is it what we say the people of God are or what God says the people of God are? And what definition are we going by? 
And this is where Paul really takes the whole argument, where he says, this is the problem with our heart, and this is where we, uh, don't leave, our, we, we leave ourselves on the hook, so to speak. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Okay, he talks about a remnant chosen by grace. Now, remnant means those who remain, those who are faithful. That it's, think of the, um, if any classic persecution story you might be familiar with with the Roman Empire. Bunch of Roman centurions bust into the scene. Okay, it'd only be one, and then a bunch of troops. They bust under the scene. Hey, there's an illegal gathering of Christians. Everyone in the middle of the room, we're going to kill you for your faith. Those that get in the middle of the room, probably true believers. Those that hightail it out. I can't say what the state of their faith is, but they're not really there in their relationship yet. Um, that's, really, that's really how it works out. That um, you know that you know that you know, and God knows, and these are two sides of the same coin. Okay, we'll come back to that real quick. And then he talks about this remnant chosen by grace. God can choose only two ways. Our merit or his merit. What we did or who he is. So if he chooses anything that we did, that's choosing by works. He was smart enough to figure out the gospel. He was lucky enough to be born in a country where he had access to the gospel. He was good enough not to get entangled with stuff where he could hear the gospel. He was wise enough to recognize the gospel. He was whatever. Anything, any merit on our point, if, if God says, yes, I'm applying salvation to you, that's works. That's earning. That's all about us, and we're on the hook for the rest of our salvation. That's bad news, okay? If it is grace, in other words, who he is, and it's a free choice, then it has nothing to do with us but everything to do with God. And this is the point that Paul's been making all along. God's been free to choose at every generation. He's committed himself to his people. These people... I'm inviting and I'm creating the context through my covenants, through my presence, through my leading, through my truth, through my word, through my oracles, through the presence of my spirit, through miracles, through, through my visitation. I am showing the world what a relationship with me looks like. But those that really have a heart for me, those that really respond will. And those that don't, won't. So who's really my people? Well, if we were to ask God, he'd say, well, show me, show me the money. Show me who responded. Those are my people. Not the people that call on, them, call on my name because talk is cheap. What about this hardening? That's kind of harsh. Those that reject God, God hardens. The spirit of stupor. In other words, he makes it so that they will be unable to find him. That seems ridiculously unfair. That does not seem right. How could it be that God wants people to come to him and yet when people don't, when people reject him, then he makes it harder. Okay, we can't speak ultimately because we're not God. And this is where we get into trouble. Where we think, well, God's written this person off. God's accepted it. We don't know the whole story. Two, none of us loves anyone like God loves anyone. Okay? The amount of love we have for the person we love most in this world is a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of love God has for the person we hate most in this world. So God is so much more invested with every single person than we could ever imagine we are. It's much more real, much more raw to God, and God's the only one that's done anything about it at, at, at infinite cost to himself. So the problem isn't God's indifference toward humanity. It's our apparent, uh, it's our, our, the view of that apparently from us. I believe what God does in the little bit of evidence we have in Scripture is when someone rejects God, that is serious. 
That is dangerous. That there is severity that's waiting for that person because this is God. This is who he is. They look him in the eye and they say, no, thank you. I can do it on my own. I'm better than you. There's consequences for that. And that's pure justice. So even though they've made their choice, what God does is he limits the consequence on them by blinding them. It's like diminished capacity. That if you know less of right and wrong, you're going to be punished less for this, even though you'll be punished. Jesus said, the slave that knows his master's will and doesn't do it gets many lashes. But the slave that didn't know his master's will and still didn't do it will receive a few. Okay, it's, it's, it's equitable justice. And so I believe the hardening in short term is God's mercy. It's saying, I'm not just setting this person up for the biggest judgment ever. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blind them that their consequences would be much less, lest they come to the Lord. They come to the Lord, it's very, very different. You see, Peter says this, they, under this doom they were appointed, under this doom right now that they're cr- currently rejecting the gospel. But that doesn't mean forever. We can't say that. God doesn't say that. That just means this explains why some people have a hard time with the gospel. God's at, at working in different ways with people. But the whole story... God's invested. God has done something. God is at work in people's hearts and lives. God's drawing people to himself. Those that will respond, will respond. And God connects. There were, there were, I'm just getting a little ahead of myself. There will be nobody in hell who doesn't deserve to be there. All right? Every single person in hell will deserve to be there. They've rejected God. And God grants them their wish for eternity. You said, I want nothing of you in this life. You have nothing of God in the, in there, thereafter. But there will be no one in heaven who deserves to be there. Right? There will not be a single person in heaven who deserves to be there. I don't deserve to be there. I'm a murderer, adulterer, idolater. I'm a sinner. None of us deserves to be there. It's only on, by the finished work of Christ. And so if we start from the vantage point of none of us deserve, all of us are hellbound, that God would save one is merciful, that he saves two is incredible, that he's saving hundreds and thousands, that he's extended his grace to mankind is absolutely amazing. And it's what God is doing. But God, God respects our response as well. Paul's still wrestling with this. Again, I ask, did they stumble, they the Jews? Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their, and these are all plural words, because of plural Jews, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much more greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Do you know what the word Jew means? No, I'm not setting up a racist joke. Do you know what the word Jew means? It means praise. Judah, praise. Praise God. I had another son, Judah. Um, God's people are supposed to bring forth his praise in their lifestyle. And we have the whole law, 612 laws, that were wiring God's character and heart into their local culture. Now, some people approach it this way as an outside, um, in, uh, an outside in religion. I've got to conform to these requirements for me to be okay. And now I can't do this, and I can't do that, and I can't do this. And now I have to do this, and I've got to do that, and I should do this. And it's the law. And it's just conform and squeeze into a box and try and fit into the shape that you think Jesus is. And that's what being a Christian is, a God follower. I'm being anachronistic with the Jews. I realize that. And there's others that said, 
I'm a pilgrim. I'm a stranger. I don't know who this God is. But he's invited me into covenant community. I need to learn him. I need to learn his ways, his heart. And so I already understand this culture. So God has wired his heart into this culture. So everywhere I turn, I can learn God more. I can make God more part of my life. This is how I deal with dressing. This is how I deal with eating. This is how I deal with relationships. How I deal with using my words. How I deal with livestock. How I deal with my neighbor. How I deal with everything around me culturally. This is how I respond as God would. This is how I act like God would. This is how I can show people what a relationship with Yahweh looks like that they would praise God it's supposed to be live it's supposed to be raw it's supposed to be attractive and there was a group that did one and there was a group that did the other there's a group that responded in faith it was true Israel and God credit their faith as righteousness and then there's a group that said God you owe me yeah I'm chosen I'm in I'm yours it doesn't matter thank you and now I'm going to show you what a good move you made picking me because this is how good I am according to your law This is how much you owe me. This is how much I deserve, how much I have earned. And this is how much I need to be a broker in the kingdom. This person in, this person out. You agree with me, you're good, you don't, you're out. And and, and it all becomes this outside-in religion. Whereas what God intends is an inside-out freedom. Notice notice our calling. 1 Peter Last, thing, uh, last things that Peter's writing to, to the people that he poured his life into before he checked out. Live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, even though your life might be going against the grain, might be upsetting people, might be provocative, it's real, it's healing, it's life, and it will connect them to God, that their heart will be confronted and it will be a reveal. We, as God's people, are to bring forth the praise of others. Nothing has changed. It's the same mission. So what God was basically doing is saying this. I spoke in power, and you understood generally. I spoke with conscience in you, and you understood generally. This is Romans 1. The attributes of God pressed into this world, pressed into our hearts. We just know that there's something beyond us, not who. So God has spoken through his son, through his word. And he's spoken in the context of people. And so he's incarnated himself saying, this is what life with me looks like. Those that would showed people that life. And they were taken up in God. Those that wouldn't went through the motions and were just going through the motions and died. And uh, God said, by and large, more and more of his people decided just to make it about them and not about God. There were always those that responded in faith to him. And he's saying there's always a remnant. God's always faithful to his word. There will always be Jews that are believing because God is faithful to, to the patriarchs, to the promises, and he's good to his word. But when God said Jew, he meant those who will truly bring forth my praise, those who truly love me, those who truly follow my word, those who make it about me and not about them. Those who have an inside-out relationship and not an outside-in faith, or outside-in religion. And this is the Jews of the Old Testament as much as Christians of the New Testament. God saves people only one way, through the applied, finished work of Christ. It's the exchanged life. The Jews in the Old Testament looked forward to what they understood from a distance. That God was good for it. He was going to take care of it. They didn't understand fully how it was going to work out with the Messiah. We look back to what we understand still better but not completely. What God did in Christ was exchange our lives. All my bad placed on him and justice was done. All his good placed on me. I'm fully obedient in his eyes. So now I can do life with God. 
And so God's saying, Israel, by and large, as a nation, dropped its calling. But true Israel is always responding. But what God did is in Christ, he said that salvation is going directly to every person. Not through a people, but to individual. That was Pentecost. That was the Holy Spirit. You shall receive power on high to be my witnesses. Not just in what we speak, not even in another language, but witnesses in everything we do, every way we place mean, press meaning into our worlds and touch other people's lives, that is the power on high to be his witnesses. That's what we're called to do, to bring out the praise of others. And so the calling of Israel has now been placed much wider to all who would have the faith of Abraham, all who would take God at his word, all who would say, I trust you, the exchanged life in Christ. So that brings us back then. Well, what about Israel? See, the problem that Paul was dealing with was this. He's writing to Rome, and there was a situation about, sorry, he's in Corinth this time, 53. It was about six years earlier. There was a, um, a lotto scam. You know they had scratch and win tickets in the Roman Empire? Powerball? And they totally did. They, it was a different version of it, but um, I'd like five cards, please. Roman, get it, five. Okay, anyway, um, so they had this, this imperial lottery, and there were these Jewish evangelists that had made this plea for this special lottery to happen to help disabled children or something. They were con artists. Well, anyway, one of, um, one of uh, Caesar's uh, a couple senators' wives, and I think one of the wives of, uh, or a wife of one of the Caesars, fell, fell for this uh, Claudi- under Claudius. And, um, and it was a huge scandal. And so what they did is they were so embarrassed, you know, I had to tell my bank that I lost $27 million of my bank's money giving it to a Nigerian prince. Oops. It, it was one of those kind of things. Uh, you, you don't really want to um, say this. And so they were so embarrassed, they barred all Jews from Rome. And so that's where Paul met Priscilla and Aquila. That's where um, Paul met all these people that he greets at the end of this book. He met them all because they fled to Corinth and Ephesus. And this is where he connected with them. So there's, there used to be a church that was predominantly Jewish. It was probably people that heard about Jesus at Pentecost. Latin was one of the languages. And they, they took the gospel back to Rome. And these people were flourishing. Then all the Jews were kicked out. It was just a few Gentile Christians. So the Gentile Christians were saying, like some people do today, well, I guess the Jews had their day in the sun and the sun is set. And now it's time for us Gentiles to finish the race. In other words, we're going to take the Old Testament and everywhere we see Israel, we're going to scratch it out and we're going to write church. And everywhere we say Jew, we're going to scratch it out and we're going to write Christian. And, and, and so there were a lot of people thinking that in, in the church at Rome. And so Paul's writing saying, whoa, 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 whoa. First of all, no. And second of all, no. And why we're on the topic, no. God hasn't forgotten Israel. God hasn't just dropped them. God hasn't replaced Israel with a church. The promises of God, the gifts of God, they're irrevocable. God is good for that. But it's how we understand what we mean when we say Israel and when we say the church and we say the people of God, that's what we need to sort out. So Paul goes, and I'll I'll spare the text, we're kind of running out of time, Um, but he goes into this example of, of 
grafting branches in. And he says, you guys all know about grafting branches because we are going to die if we don't eat food and everybody has to eat food to survive. And so everybody was an amateur you know, gardener. Um, and grafting branches was for survival. So you would have a domesticated tree and you could put domestic um, shoots on it. It's where you take a branch and you snap off the branch of one tree and you stick a branch of a new tree on, you tie it together. And just like bones that break, We'll, we'll knit together. These branches will grow together. Well, if you have two of the same kinds of plant, it's pretty easy. If you have different kinds, it's a lot more difficult. And so Paul uses that imagery. And he says, think of Israel as a natural olive tree. It's just this beautiful in a garden, and it's cultivated, and there's just thick, fat fruit, and it's all good. And then for some crazy reason, the gardener decides to cut off one of the natural branches. It wasn't bearing a lot of olives. And then it grafts in this wild olive branch. What's going to happen? And then the wild olive branch, just, just all sorts of olives, and it's crazy. Well, what if the wild olive branch suddenly stops bearing olives? Would it be easier to remove that wild branch that didn't belong and, and to put back the natural branch? Or to stick another wild branch on. And, and, and so the argument is, well, obviously, if it's the same thing, it's going to be easier. And so Paul's saying, you need to bear that in mind, Gentiles. That God's people were the Jews, selected among all the people. Not because they were better, not because they were more, not because they were anything other than representatives of all of us. To show people what relationship with God is like. And what God is doing with the Gentiles is because God is love. And that's how he rolls and his love overflows. And even though some were disobedient, the plan of God isn't thwarted. God goes around that. God goes where? Well, he is everywhere. He's omnipotent, so very correct answer. But God goes where? God goes where he is wanted. Why is there a revival going on amongst the Mongolians? One of the youngest churches in the world, less than 10 years old. Why is there a revival going on in the Pacific Rim? Why is there a revival going on parts of North Korea, parts of Egypt, parts of Iran, among the Berbers, North Africa? Why is there a revival going on? And yet we in America who have more access to more Bibles, more Christian teaching, more sermons, more worship, more discipleship, more fellowship, more anything than anybody has ever had in the history of mankind, there's such indifference and apathy. Because God goes where he's wanted. Another way of saying this is the grass is always greener. Where it's watered. And this is what God had all along for his people. I go where I'm wanted. He set up through the covenants. Through the tabernacle. Through the prophets. Through the giving of his word. Through his presence with his people. He set up the context for relationship. Which is surrender. Which is vulnerability. Which is intimacy. Which is trust. It's all there. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And whoever did was and whoever didn't, wasn't. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Sternness and kindness in God. Does it seem like an oxymoron? Can you be stern and kind? 
People are terrified of God's holiness, but I think it's one of the most comforting things that there is. People, when they think of God's holiness, we take it in isolation. God's holy, God's perfect. If he sees any attitude, any thought, anything in me that is displeasing to him, he's going to smoke me. He's going to get me. God's perfect. He's holy, and I'm not. And I've got to be on my best behavior. He knows. God's holiness means he doesn't change. It means he, he brooks no evil. He doesn't settle. He doesn't settle for less. He doesn't compromise. He doesn't acquiesce. He, he doesn't allow what is hurtful, what is wrong, what, what, is, what is robbery. He doesn't allow this. And so the fact that God is holy means that he will be stern to anything that harms us. David could say to a shepherd, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. What was the rod for? It was a long, heavy stick used to beat wolves to death if they came near the sheep. And, and the, the staff was the crook used to pull sheep back when they're in danger. We think the rod is the spare the rod, spoil the child. God's going to beat me. Really? The rod he uses to beat me comforts me. No. He's going to protect me from all those that are out there. That comforts me. The rod and the staff, they comfort me. God is stern. God is opposed to all that is opposed to him, his heart, his goodness. The enemy came to kill, rob, and destroy and God took that very personally and very upon himself and got very involved to make all the difference in the world. And so God's holiness gives me hope and joy that he is going to have my very best. That although I will compromise with sin, he will not. Although I let the, the, the enemies in the land uh, populate the land still in my heart, he does not. And that he wants the better, the good, the right Therefore, consider this kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell because sin is contagious, because sin corrupts, because sin is deceitful. But kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were once cut out of an olive tree that is wild, contrary to nature, da, 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 okay, that's basically what I said, moving on. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. This Jacob's another way of saying Israel. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And he calls him Jacob because it's personal with God. Jacob, name means grabber. Um, he renamed him to Israel. It means the one that contends with God or the God that perseveres with us. And I think both are true. It's personal. It's real. See, he's dealing with an attitude of arrival. He's saying, what was the problem with Israel? We have Israel as a nation of people, and we have the true Israel of God. The true Israel of God has always existed within the Israel as a nation, the Israel as people, as it does to this day. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever recognizes that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah is completed. Um, and that is a guarantee, and that is in God's word, and that continues. But he's saying that national Israel is different from true Israel. And we need to bear that in mind in in shaking out how the gospel works with us. This attitude of arrival. I have this unbelievable 
salvation that has been accomplished for me. And God has done everything and it is so costly. And here it is given to me and it's mine. How do we respond? How has it changed us? How has it made a difference in our life? In baptism class, we're talking about uh, one, of the, one of the reasons we get baptized. We're going to have about eight people next week. It's going to be awesome. But in, in, and just amazing, amazing things that God has done that we celebrate. But it's, part of it is, is some, of the, some children are being baptized. And it's a sense of you're recognizing it's no longer just your parents' faith, but it's your faith. Okay, there's a natural time when you grow up and this is your parents' faith and this is what you do and mom and dad go to church and you go to church and that's fine. But it's really easy to go through the motions. It's really easy to be familiar with church. It's really easy to be been there, done that, got the t-shirt and, and go on with life. And this is the warning because it said Israel did this. Israel understood election. They understood God had chosen. They understood they were saved no matter what. And they presumed upon that. And they said, God loves us. We're the best. We're chosen. It's been done for me. I don't have to do anything. Hey, that's great. Yeah, I'll come to service. And yeah, yeah, God's wonderful. Yada, yada. It doesn't matter ultimately because I'm in. And I'll go live the rest of my life. And Paul reminds me saying, you know what? That was never how it was intended. And those that started out that way, they never found it. Don't make the same mistake. Faith needs to be intention. It is much easier to live in the comfortable extremes of certainty than in the center of biblical tension. But it is only in the center of biblical tension where God does his best work. See, it's the crucible where we can't lean on our own understanding. Where we can't lean on, on, on pride of theology. We can't lean on past performance. We, we can't lean on all of these things that we could use even of God to justify ourselves. It is where we're stripped where we don't have the answers. We don't have it figured out. We can't put God in a box. And we are left just on our knees before our God saying, forgive me, Lord, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. Faith needs to be Dynamic. See, the reason he warns us is it is so easy having had everything done for us because there's nothing we could do in the first place. It's so easy having that done to do just as Israel did and we have an association with it. We have a familiarity with it. There were lots of people that sojourned with Israel and they went to temple services and they were circumcised and they, they memorized the Torah and they did all of this and they, they, they had the works and they were not Israel. There are many Israelites who did that, and they were not Israel. Those that respond in faith are true Israel, and it's the same for the Jew and for the Gentile. How do we respond to individual Jews then? I know it's hard to tell those two apart. I get confused too. Same with these guys. How do we respond to individual Jews? Are they in? They're God's people. They're chosen. God's faithful to the government. Don't even waste your time evangelizing them because they're in already and Gentiles need to hear the gospel. Or are they out? I'd say it's very simple. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What do you do with Jesus? Do they know the Messiah or not? That's an individual thing. And we relate just like every individual. Now, Jews, as Paul recognizes, have the covenant, have the oracles, have much more of a familiarity. But you know what happens with familiarity? Breeds contempt. But enough about Thanksgiving. Just kidding. Um, familiarity breeds contempt. Family's the hardest to witness to. And so sometimes Jews can be the hardest to witness to because they know too much. 
Missed it by this much, 18 inches. But I know all the answers. Here's, a, here's just a word of warning. If your hope in getting into heaven and standing before the Almighty is anything above a kindergarten grasp of theology, you're in big trouble. In other words, if you have to justify your life and your belief system using theology with God, you haven't got a prayer. Faith is not childish, but we need to be childlike in our approach to God. And this is your word, and I accept it. And, and I, it's only because of what you've done. And that applies out to the individual. What about national Israel? How do we relate to just Jews as a whole? Israeli Defense Force. Modern Jews. How do we relate to individuals as such? And, and while we're on the topic, how do we relate to the nation of Israel, the land? What do we do with that? Three religions claim it. The wall. Settlements. The military. U.S. support of Israel. Our prayers. You guys with me so far? Because this is where I lose all of you. So, I believe goose, gander. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. God has always and only saved people one way. Through the application of the finished work of Christ. It's an exchanged life. Christ's righteousness reckoned to us. Our full sin reckoned and dealt with in Christ. And that's it. And he set up the context in particular for his people who by and large used it to justify themselves rather than used it to reveal themselves and throw themselves on God's mercy. But to this day, there are Jews who know the Messiah, who are part of the remnant, who are part of God's faithfulness. There have always been Jews who've had this passionate, personal, surrendered relationship with God, and there will always be. And that's what God meant when he says, my people, who call upon my name, who bring forth praise from others because of how they live their lives. This is, this is true Israel. This is that Abrahamic faith. It has nothing to do with justification, nothing to do with the law, and that's why it's Abraham's faith, not Moses. Same thing with believers. Now, we can make the same mistake that Israel made. For those of us who've grown up in a Christian home, for those of us who've grown up at Bethel, for those of us grown up in a church, those of us who perhaps find ourselves comfortable in church, it's familiar. I start rolling my eyes now at Christian pop culture. Um, I, I know the Bible inside and out. Been there, done that. We, we, wanna, we gotta beware because this is a warning that, of God's fierce love for us that it's gotta be real. And it's got to be raw. And our faith cannot devolve back to just mere observance, just mere conformity, just, well, I believe the right thought, so I should be okay. It needs to provoke us. It needs to unsettle us. It needs to confound us. It needs to confront us. We can't just live our lives and move it in one direction. And, and I, if you think I'm referring to the group, I am, as well as, you know, just kidding. We, our lives can't be our own. And so our faith has to be provocative. Are you frustrated with God? Has God disappointed you? Because he needs to. Because that means God's being God and not just 
answering your prayers and following according to your expectations. If God never disappoints you, it means he's only done everything you've wanted him to, which means he's no greater than you. So God will disappoint you for him to be God. When's the last time God has disappointed you? When's the last time you've been called up short? And God, how? Why? When's the last time you've been angry with God? When's the last time you've been angry with God? How many people have been in a real relationship with a real person? This, this, it's okay. You can raise your hands. We're in church. You're going to lie in church, really? I mean, I get paid to lie in church, but you guys, I mean, it's, it's crazy. What's that relationship like? You, you've seen people, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm in this great relationship. Oh, yeah, how, how are they doing? Oh, I guess they're doing okay. Well, when's the last time you saw her? Ah, oh, it's a long-distance relationship. Well, when's the last time you called her? Ah, oh, a couple months ago. Well, do you Skype? What's that? Do you talk on the phone? Ah, oh, it's too expensive. We text a couple times. A couple times? What kind of a relationship do you have? Oh, look, I texted her a couple weeks ago. It's fine. We're good. I mean, we're good, right? She said she's going out with me. We're good. If you're in a real relationship, you just know how unbelievably silly that is. A real relationship is going to move you. You're going to do stupid things because of it. You're not yourself. You're going to discover parts of your heart you didn't know existed. You're going to be disappointed with yourself how you're provoked. Why? Because you're reacting. You're responding. It's a real thing. You get angry because you care. Because you get hurt. Because you're made vulnerable. We know how to push the other's buttons. That's a relationship. If that's not happening with your relationship with God... Romans 11 is a big warning then. Because read back through the Old Testament. It isn't this God of conformity and expectation and he's just sitting there, you know, lightning bolts and smoking people and who's going to have a good time and who's going to laugh inappropriately. Uh Uh-uh. It is a God that gets in your face. It is a God that doesn't let you be. Who are the people that God said, you're my friend? Abraham. Abraham is bartering with him. I'm not going to pay 500 for this carpet. Look at it. It's frayed ends. I'll give you 100 and no more. Are you kidding? My grandma made this carpet. 1,000 shekels I'll not see less. That's what he did arguing for people. But God, you can't kill all these people in Sodom. What if there were 50 righteous people? Okay, I'm not going to smoke the city for 50 righteous people. Okay, God. 40, 30, 10. He's in there arguing with God, being outrageous, being outlandish. Chutzpah. Do you see me spit like that? Chutzpah. It's a Jewish word and it's used in prayer. Are you moved? Are you shaken? Are you provoked? Are you disappointed? Has God made you angry? Has God brought you to tears? Has God enraptured your soul? Has there been a peace you can't explain? Do you want to know more of God's word? Or... Was there an experience? Maybe it was a crisis. Maybe it was good vibes with kids at camp. Maybe it was to impress somebody. Maybe it was whatever. And things changed a bit. And then they kind of trimmed out, and life is pretty much your life. But you go to church, you know the songs, you're familiar with Scripture, say prayers occasionally. Because there's a lot of Israel that did that very thing. It was familiar. It was a part of life. It was not a way of life. It was an identity that they presumed there was no reality on the inside. They missed it by this much difference between the head and the heart. And so how do we relate to Israel as a nation? Israel as a nation is a nation state like any other 291 nations on this planet. Ethnically, there are more Jews in America than in Israel right now. 
Um, the Ashkenazi Jews, they were all Eastern Europeaners that, that, that 400 years ago changed in mass, you know, converted in mass. They're religiously, they're very Jews. Ethnically, they're not Jewish at all. There's more ethnic Jews in this African tribe than Kohenin Jews in Tel Aviv. Okay, this is, these are, this is a Jewish group that migrated out uh, before the temple that fell and uh, bred in Africa. So when we're looking at where is ethnic Israel, we can't find ethnic Israel scattered all over the world. There's religious Israel, but again, that's scattered throughout the world because uh, Israel is a secular state. Um, and so you have Arabs, you have Christians, you, you have, you have Sufi, Sufis and Dervishes, you, you have Buddhists and atheists and Hindus and all sorts of groups in Israel. But yet you have Israel of God. Now the Israel of God are the people that God has chosen, and that includes all ethnic Jews. The ones that take them up on that, the one that responds. I'm not going to argue over what's going on behind the curtains and, and, and choosing and all of that, because God says, all you got to know is what's going on here in this world that you can know. I've laid this out. Do you respond or do you not? All of ethnic Israel that's responded, that's true Israel. But all us Goy, all us Gentiles who've responded as well, that's true Israel as well. We relate to the true Israel of God, recognizing our role being grafted in. That this is where God started salvation to mankind. This is where God established himself. This is where the Messiah has come through. This is where God is making good on his promises to his people, irrespective But that true Israel does need to respond to the Messiah. And so we need to join in praying for the Israel of God. All ethnic Jews to know their Messiah. We need to pray. We we need to witness. We need to share. We need to support ministries that do this because it is real and it is on. Paul says this. He says, if Jews being disobedient means that God goes around and that salvation comes to the Gentiles, when Jews finally see who their Messiah is, that's going to be salvation to the world. And so that is in God's ultimate plan for the world. That is in our best interest, the world's best interest, and God's best interest in his people whom he chose that that the, the circuit would be completed in Christ, in the Messiah. But the reality is that there's a partial hardening with ethnic Israel right now. Um, and again, it's those that are, are, are seeing this and choosing it. God is, God is protecting them right now for the, these consequences. Rest of the story, we'll see how it plays out. How do we relate to the nation state of Israel? I'd say the nation state of Israel is a nation state like any other nation state. It is not the Israel of the Old Testament. Israel of the Old Testament was a theocracy. God was their leader. He ruled at times through prophets, through judges, through kings. But God was the unmistakable, acknowledged ruler. This is a secular state where that is not the case now. And so in terms of uh, if you, you pray for Israel, uh, bless, those that bless Israel, I will bless. I believe that's talking about the Israel of God ethnic Israel, not the nation state of Israel. I I think in terms of where we go on the Palestinian conflict or support to Israel, all of that, these are personal choices uh, not um, not to be wired one way or another scripturally regarding the nation state, not ethnic Israel. Um, What about the land? Didn't God give this land to the Jews? So are we part of the problem now when we're not supporting settlement? So are we part of the solution? How does this work? I can only say where I go personally. Um, where I go personally is this. God began with a person. 
that became a family, that became a nation, that became a dynasty, that spilled out over to all tribes, tongues, and nations, that people would know him. And God began that story in a place. And it was a place, it became a city, that became a land that was promised for his people. But just as the people became all nations, the land becomes the whole planet. As, as deep as the waters cover the earth, so will the praise of God extend all around this world. That God's end goal isn't this carved out area, in the small little area in the middle of the Levant in, in Palestine. God's game plan is the entire nation giving praise. And you read all the prophecies of Israel, that is how it's connected together. As, as a nexus, my house will be called a house of prayer for the nations. And so... For those that say God has promised Israel this land, I'd say absolutely, and that's in the Bible. But we're going back about 700 B.C. and stopping there. We're doing time travel. If we say we're just going to stop here and say this is what God has promised and all that God's promised, and it's only the Jews and everyone out, that's absolutely true. Six, 700 um, B.C., that's true. But God's plans have continued to break forward. God's people have continued to be gathered from all the nations. Uh, True Israel continues to be revealed. And uh, those that call upon God and places where God is working and where he's healing lands continues to expand around the whole world. And so there is always something so much bigger going on here than, than what we could imagine what God is doing. No, we're getting late. Without communion, apologize. Close with this. This is the greatest and worst example I'll ever use. It's the greatest example for what I'm going to say. Secondly, it's the worst example from what I'm going to say at the beginning. Okay? Our salvation is just like a gift that's been bought for us, right? It's been paid in full, and it's cost us nothing because Jesus did it all. Correct? But when we get our salvation, we recognize the precious value of this, and we recognize that value and the cost we're now willing to pay as we live out our lives. It's already ours. We're not earning this. If we do nothing, it is still ours. But as we pay the cost in our witness, in making decisions, in stopping this and starting this and trusting God and surrendering more of our lives, we pay the cost and we're willing to because we see the value of it. Okay, so greatest example of our salvation is like a gift given to us. And there's a huge difference between people who are working for their gift. No peace, no rest, not knowing where they stand. Did I do enough? Have I earned it yet? And it's mine and gimme and the attitude's different. And those that have just been, wow, really? It's mine already? Okay, that's salvation. Okay, think, hold on to that example. Now I'm going to flip it a little bit. All analogies break down. When I was in, in college, it was very clear the parents of uh, kids who bought them cars and, and the kids whose parents didn't buy them cars and they had to work for their cars. Now, if you're able to buy your kid a car, that's awesome, that's great. Nothing, this is, says nothing against, against you. If you're able to, great. But I noticed this dynamic. Those that were just given a car, okay, and I'm not talking about ownership here, I'm talking about experience of the car, they were maniacs. They'd just grind the engine and, and never took care of it, and there's just garbage everywhere, and stuff breaks. Um, I was at spring break at a, at a, at a friend's house, and, and we're, we're going home, um, and uh, this girl's like, hey, the car won't start. And so I'm looking at it, I'm like, what did you do? And I can't even get the dipstick out to check the oil. And she's like, oil, what's that? How long have you had your car? Oh, two and a half years. You've never put oil in. No, seriously, what, what's this oil you keep talking about? Um, no, just no concept. I, I mean, it's just this thing that I use when I need it, and then I put it away, and it's always going to be there when I need it, and I put it back. 
I had to earn a car, so I, had to, I worked as a service mechanic, which is terrible. Thank God nobody, none of you took your cars in to see me, because, um, you know, there'd be stuff between us. Um, and, uh, and then I was able to buy this, this, this beat-up uh, 1970s harvester, International Harvester Scout for my dad, work on that and get it going, and then sell that car, and then use all the rest of my summer money to buy this Subaru Brat, greatest car ever made, 1980. I start it like this, um, and there's my car. Now I'm an idiot because I was a maniac, and I'm spinning Brodies on the dorm lawns and just treating car terrible. But I worked on this baby. I fixed it. I pulled the engine. I changed everything. I'm, I'm tweaking this out. You know, I'm starting the car, listening to the idle. I'm like, I'm putting pennies together for gas. I loved this thing. This this got me everywhere. I was the guy that drove all the friends around. We, you don't know how many people you can cram in here. The experience of me with my car having having worked for it, having paid the cost, and the experience of those who just sort of had it all along, the experience couldn't have been different. That has nothing to do with ownership, okay? So I'm not talking salvation. But the experience couldn't have been more different. And this is the experience between true Israel and ethnic Israel. This is the story between true believers and people who associate at church and go through the motions and think they're Christians. Because if it's just this thing that's come to you, you grew up in a Christian home, you're born in church, it's familiar, you get it, I believe these facts, sure, I'm saved, isn't that nice, I'll live my life. That's the mistake that Israel made, that's what three chapters of warning and wrestling are about. But in recognizing what this is and willing to pay the cost and willing to engage and to do the hard work and trust God to be provoked, to be disappointed, to be brought to tears, to be angered, to be enraptured, to be surrendered willingness to do all of this, that is a completely different approach to faith. And that's all the difference between the two. Do you see the difference? This is what Paul has been saying for three chapters. This is why this is such a huge argument about salvation and faith. Because he's just been arguing so eloquently about God's love for us. And he loves us no matter what. There isn't anything we can do that would stop him from loving us as much as he does right now. But we got to participate. We need to respond. Faith needs to provoke. Faith needs to change. Faith needs to consume. God's love is fierce. And he will, bro- he will brook no, no imposters, no contenders, no plan Bs. He loves us that much. Passionate, dedicated, responsive, real, raw. Let's pray. Lord God. There is much in your word that is still so far beyond us. And I think how infested you are, how much you love, how much your heart breaks for those who should know you more than anyone but are holding you more at arm's length. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the salvation of Israel. We pray that those who would know you would come to complete and utter faith in you. We thank you that we can be a part of what you're doing. But Lord God, we don't want to presume as much as people who were convinced they were so close presumed as well. Lord, shake us. Show us what is lacking. Show us where we have just taken our hands off the wheel. Show us where where perhaps things have not taken. But this week, would you shake us? Would you provoke us? Would you wake us up? Would you let us know how real, how raw you are? and where you want to most work in our lives in Christ's name.